0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And welcome to T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio Podcast. The most fun you'll ever listen to while you're folding your clothes. Now let's get this straight. This is not your average podcast. T-Pain's Nappy Boy Radio is super fun, super crazy. It's pretty much an in-your-face conversation. That's the good thing about us. We don't do interviews. We do conversations. All of my guests, all of my co-hosts, we chill. We drink. We play games. We have the song of the week. We have the creative curse word of the week. As long as you're having fun as our guest. Speaking of guests, each week, I'm gonna go through my whole contact list and dive head first into the world of music, gaming, exotic cars, tech, strippers probably
1: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Sam Vecini, my colleague at The Athletic, and preeminent draft aficionado, expert, and lots of material, of course, to get into. Really fascinating draft, and it's Sam and I, so of course, we get into the pending off-season as well, and a lot of great stuff here. Hope you really enjoy it. Well, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Danny, it is... A
1: beautiful,
2: beautiful Monday here in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm so happy to be podcasting with you. Uh, We didn't do the Friday podcast because my brain was irrevocably broken by having to do a uh, three-hour podcast stream and then write like essentially 8,000 words after that between the draft wrap up, the Russell Westbrook thing that we did, the Celtics Hawks three team trade thing that Seth and I did. Um, we we couldn't get the friday podcast in but i'm glad we're doing uh, a post draft wrap up regardless
1: yeah and i you know i i generally give you give you your space cuz this is such a big busy time for you and it everything coming together has made it so has made it so complicated in terms of navigating all this but i'm really happy we're able to do the draft and i will Start opening for I don't want to get to the Westbrook thing right away though. I think we will we will tackle that later. Yeah. You have seen more of these players than I have. You know you know kind of the dynamics here differently than I do. So I'll I'll give it to you. What is you what is your biggest takeaway from the twenty twenty one NBA draft?
2: I think my biggest takeaway is I think this is gonna be a really good draft for a few reasons. And it's hard to go past just Hey, look, the NBA now has Cade Cunningham, Jalen Suggs, Jalen Green, and like Evan Mobley in the league now. And that's great. Those guys are all going to be stars in my opinion. I think they're all that. – that is what this draft is going to be known for long term. I feel very strongly about that. It's going to be known for the star power that now exists in the league because of it. I also think that it's going to be known as a surprising draft in many ways. Uh, the lottery did not go – uh, largely as we thought it would, but uh, you know, with it, it went, there were players that were selected in the lottery that we thought would be selected in the lottery, but we did not think they would go to the specific teams that they went to. Then there was like the Josh Primo surprise, which was just like, what the fuck's going on here? Um, But I think it's going to be known for the star power, and more than that, I think, not more than that, but in addition to that, it will be known as a draft where a lot of perimeter talent entered the NBA. There is an enormous influx of interesting perimeter players who are gifted shooters, skilled ball handlers, high-level processors of the game. I think that the NBA got a massive influx of perimeter-based talent uh, in the 2021 NBA draft.
1: That's a really interesting thought, and it was something I didn't get to go through as much film as I wanted, but got through the, well, what we thought was going to be the top six, one of them did not go in the top six, and a few other kind of stray players. And something that is, I've been thinking about over the last little while, you and I have talked about it over the last few years, I mean, going back with other people to various podcasts, is I think we're seeing the fruit, the early fruit, it'll get even stronger over the next five to 10 years of coaches at lower levels, really letting taller players spend more time with the ball. Like that was, you know, and not necessarily just the LeBrons and the Lucas of the world, but you know, I mean, that's a huge part of the, of the Scotty Barnes story. Like, you know, that his, his place within Florida state and, and, and at other places as well. And That – it's not going to lead necessarily – like not all of those guys are going to be primary ball handlers at the NBA level. But they those skills, especially if you encourage shooting, which I mean we're seeing a higher proportion of guys that can shoot as well – if that it leads to all these other spillover benefits, so like players that can make a couple dribbles and can make a pass and can read the closeout, can attack a closeout, can you know grab and go if that's what it ends up being. Like having a higher proportion of the NBA and a higher proportion of high end leagues around the world, whether we're talking the G League or you know ACB and everything else. Like that only leads to good things for the quality of the product that you and I love so much.
2: Yeah, totally. So I I think it's kind of a combo of a couple things. I I totally agree with you that in part what we're seeing here is developmentally at lower levels, more coaches are putting an emphasis on perimeter skills. And perimeter skills from bigger guys. Also, I think we're seeing a real change in terms of NBA teams recognizing what they need in order to be successful in the playoffs, um, in the regular season, with the way that the game has changed in regard to perimeter talent. Uh, very few centers have been drafted in the first round, R- really in like the last, I would even say, three years, realistically, like... Jackson Hayes went in the top 10, which doesn't look super great right now. Uh, Goga Bitadze went in the top 20. And then Fiondi Cabangeli went in the top 30. Other than that, those were the only three centers that got drafted in the first round in 2019. You know, you look back at 2020, James Wiseman goes in the first round. Jalen Smith, which was, like, a nonsensical pick, but, like, he goes in the top 10. Isaiah Stewart goes in the top 16. Zeke Naji goes in the top 22. And then Yudoka Azebuka goes 27. Like, that's eight centers in the 2019 and 2020 drafts combined. This season, we had Evan Mobley. We had Shengun. We had... Kai Jones, we had Isaiah Jackson and Garuba, really, and dayron Sharp, I guess. Um, fewer teams are expending resources on the center position. And you look at the center position, the guys that were taken in this class, Evan Mobley has the perimeter skills of a four offensively. Uh, Alper and Shengun is a very dexterous player who in past years would be a four. Uh, Kai Jones, a lot of teams just think he is a four because he can't like handle the rigors of the center position defensively and is very skinny and has the ability to handle the ball. Usman Garuba is like an undersized four or five man who in past eras would be a four. Uh, really only like they sharp is the only five man that like is a true, like tried and true five man, uh, based off of past NBA standards. So, I think we're seeing a difference in the way that teams go about evaluating NBA talent and seeing what fits in the league. In addition to the really good point that you brought up, that these players are being developed differently at lower levels so that when they reach the NBA, uh, they will be what the league is looking for, essentially.
1: Yeah, and – When you went through it that way, something it reminded me of was years ago, you and I had conversations about like the evolving center position, and something we both agreed on, and we don't agree on everything when it comes to the draft, was the kind of, if you're not first, your last idea at the center position, which is, if a center is not a truly elite prospect, you probably shouldn't take them high, because the value of a top five a top three a top eight center in the league is so much higher than anyone lower than that on the list and i think we're finally seeing some of that come to fruition and i mean shangun can play a little bit of the four from what i've heard i haven't gotten to see him yet and kai kai jones can do that and so it'll be really interesting to see that move forward because really to me that is the that is the line because it's going back to the old, like in the, the legends of the Celtics practice that the smalls always beat the bigs and, and, and all of that is that, yes, truly special players. Nikola Jokic was the deserving regular season MVP. Giannis is in many ways a big and, you know, he was the best player on the NBA champions. And there are, you know, there are, there are so many exceptions that it's not a hard and fast rule, but that's kind of the point is, you know, that you had that you went outside of that group You're going to run into problems, and it's not that every team is going to, you know, expose those players every time. I mean, DeAndre Eaton had a much better postseason than I anticipated. He got some quote-unquote favorable matchups in terms of very good players, but very good players that tie in with what he does. And then, you know, he had a a little bit of a challenging series of times against the Bucs. No shame in that. They're a really good team. And they're a team that challenges Aiton specifically. But that kind of gets the idea. Like Aiton is on the higher end, if not like the highest end of the players who are kind of like touching that line of whether they're, you know, in all the time. And it's interesting to see like how, you know, general managers could be seeing it the same way. Potential. Yeah,
2: I think that's right. Like, I think that if you're going to be drafted as a center in the NBA, you need to be a potential star level center if you're going in the top 10 just straight up like otherwise it's really hard to retain value like i keep bringing up this point Clint capella this year was what like a top let's say eight to ten center in the nba yeah i I think i had him
1: second in my defensive player of the year
2: right so let's say even top like seven to ten top like seven to nine something like that center in the nba that guy last year he's on a completely reasonable contract he is not overpaid at all that guy last year got traded for like the 16th overall pick.
1: Yeah, established like it, established player, scheme versatile. You know, limited offensively, but nobody really cares. And he he hadn't maximized himself. Defense. I mean, this was his best defensive year. But and he was coming. You know, part of the reason the Rockets really wanted to sell on him was that they he was injured and they wanted somebody. But you're totally right. I mean. And, but he
2: was a really good defensive player before yeah. that. Like and He I wasn't mean, the like, lack of interest top five of, in the league, but he was good.
1: Yeah, the lack of interest around Miles Turner reportedly in the 2020 offseason is another data point in that direction. And I, I mean, I love Miles Turner more than almost anybody. So I mean, I think that I I am morally outraged by that, and we'll see what happens this year. But again, it is an important idea, and part of the reason why is that When a center only player is below that threshold, there aren't as many ways to use them productively on a good team. Or even on a bad team. And so, whereas if it's a 6 foot 8 guy, you can put 3 or 4 of them on the floor at one time. And you can put them in a second unit, you can, you can give them 28 minutes a game and mix them with the starters and backups, but when it's a center only player, it's it's both sides of the positional spectrum. It's just that oftentimes point guards can do they have more varied skill sets, is the, and sometimes you can play smalls together in a way that you don't really want to do with bigs. But there just there aren't as many spots for them, and there aren't as many ways for them to help your team. And you can run into issues of like roster spots. This is something that was driving me a little bit batty about the Charlotte Hornets the other day. Is that you know I'm not saying I don't know Kai Jones well enough to know whether that was a good or a bad pick. But they have so many low-end roster spots right now tied up in in players that I would classify as big. Yeah, and yeah, they they do. And it's it's a straight, you know after the Mason Plumlee trade, and and most of them are are either reasonable prospects or not bad players right now. But that just means you have fewer perimeter players, and that means that any injury that you have to somebody there, you have fewer possibilities. And Charlotte has better low-end perimeter depth than most teams. Like, it's an underappreciated part of their strength. It's an underappreciated part of why I think they could be a real playoff team next year. But, it's a challenge. And it's something maybe they'll end up cutting one of those young guys that they don't, that that just didn't quite work out as well. Maybe they won't. I, I don't entirely know what in the world Mitch Kupchak is going to do from this point. I'm very interested in that. Um, But that that idea, basically, it's you can have three. I I, I like to call it the patchwork quilt of bigs, where you have different players who do different things that none of whom cost too much money. Like that is a different concept of it. The Warriors did that well. We've the Clippers kind of do that. It's a little bit different. Um, And the Nets are in many ways the most ridiculous, but they also are paying DeAndre Jordan eleven million dollars. Um, but so I think that the game is kind well, of evolving. Well,
2: the, there. the Hornets are interesting because like we, we can bring them up as like a really good point. Now, they have three guys on their roster at the center position that I would consider like strong projects. Like I, I really like Kai Jones upside, but Kai Jones is going to take a couple years before he's able to like deal with the rigors defensively at playing the center position. Right. Uh On top of that, they drafted Nick Richards and Vernon Carey in the second round last year and gave both of them multi-year guarantees. Yes. Which is like a, a totally wild choice on a number of levels, but this is the off season where they're starting to like reap that like lack of foresight, I guess, or like struggle that struggle with that lack of foresight in regard to roster spots. Like they're, they're at the point now where because they have Kai Jones, because they've acquired Mason Plumley for some reason. And then on top of it, like they're rumored to be heavily in the mix for the center position, let's say. Yeah. Right. Like, Guys like Rashawn Holmes, like they, they need a starting center if they're going to take the next leap in the Eastern Conference. Uh, they can't have five centers on this roster, right? Like they can't have all of free agent center Mason Plumley, Kai Jones, Nick Richards, Vernon Carey on this roster. They're going to end up selling one of these guys for like a top fifty-five protected, protected second-round pick, and that's if anyone wants them at the end of the
1: day. Yeah, it, it's a it's challenging for. The Hornets and there are practical limitations. And yes, it's true. A lot of those guys really aren't making that much money. You know, Carrie and Richards are making their minimums. Kai Jones, 2.8 million this coming year. And then Mason Plumlee, 8.1. I mean, it's not horrendous. I don't love Mason Plumlee, but like that's not a ridiculous sum of money for him. It's fine number. Yeah. And so, but five out of 15 spots, that, that is a number. Like that's another, another real challenge. And, you can also have it the reverse which i mean to an extent and james jones has done an unbelievable job overall in phoenix but drafting somebody 10th and having them simultaneously not be good enough to play for you and not backfilling you know they had charge and that worked out beautifully but not using a roster spot to have a competent player somebody that you trusted in the you know i didn't i don't think they knew at the start of the season they were going to be making the nba finals but the level of like a Taj Gibson or a Dwayne Dedman yeah. or just like, just like a, a player that if you need them to play five to 10 minutes because DeAndre Ayton is hurt or in foul tired. trouble or tired that you could do, it. like that is valuable. And I don't think you necessarily, like every team, you know, the, the worst teams in the league don't necessarily need to devote those kind of roster spots to those kind of players. But I, I think, I mean, the Knicks are a great example of how that can be really useful and this you know James Jones did a great job this is a small you know it's a small smudge in a beautiful painting but it it is i it is notable and i think it really hurt them in the series
2: well you, you look at Milwaukee even Milwaukee made it a point to sign both Burke Lopez and Bobby Portis like Bobby Portis is not your traditional center in that like he gives you 15 minutes of high level rim protection but just having someone around that's 6 foot 11 and can play nba minutes and like, obviously in Bobby's case, is a really, really good offensive player, but can at least, like, hold his own in a drop defensively and, like, can hold his own on the glass, that matters. Like, having those minutes, they can be eaten up. They really matter. And it's why, like, in the case of, you know, what, what Chicago was doing, for instance, like, getting getting all of, like, Nikola Vucevic and Daniel Tice and, like, why I kind of think that Daniel Tice is going to be, like, a really – Likely undervalued free agency target this summer. And if I was a team with a full mid level, I I would be, you know, I I would hope that I could get him for a little bit less than that. But like, if I had a center need, if I was, well, maybe not New Orleans now, because New Orleans went out and got uh, Jonas. But like, honestly, if I was New Orleans and I missed on some targets and, you know, Daniel Tice is sitting there for seven to eight million. I wouldn't mind that because I think that someone like that can really, really help you just kind of eat up minutes. Um, I I would, if I was like someone like Indiana has been in the mix for a lot of these trade discussions, right? I would obviously be targeting Miles Turner if I could. And I I think that, you know, a, a team out there that makes sense for Miles Turner off the top of my head, I'm trying to think. Um, you know, obviously I thought New Orleans made a lot of sense for him, but. It seems like they went in a different direction with Jonas. Uh, if I was Charlotte, I would be definitely trying to make a play for Miles Turner. Oh, yeah. I would also be significantly looking into Goga Batadze because uh, I think that dude has a good shot to play real minutes at some point uh, into the future.
1: Well, and again, it's it's utilization of resources, and I, what I said at the time was if Kevin Pritchard thinks Batadze is the best player on the board, that is, that is the correct decision. But think about how hard it is for – Indiana to use all of their guys. Even if, even if Batate is the best player taken in that area, we'll have to see that. I mean, Thiebel was available then, Brendan Clark, Grant Williams, you know, all that type of stuff. Um, we'll have to see, but again, they don't have enough, you know, they don't really have enough wiggle room. That means Batate can't show what he can do. Also, he battled injuries and a bunch of other stuff this year. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's a very interesting point. So something that I've been grappling with, um, to kind of move to the top of the draft is. For Detroit with Kate Cunningham, Kate Cunningham was my number one tier one by himself. You know, think he's a think he's a special player. Not the top top tier like Anthony Davis, where it's like there's no chance he's missing. But it's like the the tier right below that where it's like damn good. You know, and there aren't you know that's better than a lot of first round picks for number one overall picks. Sorry, and. But what I'm wondering is, as you see things for the Pistons, and Cunningham played in a variety of different circumstances from his loaded high school team, some AEU stuff, and then of course at Oklahoma State, what would you be, what would your goal be in terms of building a team around Cunningham for his rookie year. Are you trying to keep Jeremy Grant, some of these other good players, and just kind of make Cunningham an important piece in the mix, but have some other kind of like higher usage players? Or do you think it's like, give him the keys, put some spacing around and see where it goes?
2: This is kind of a cop-out, but I I would kind of want both i I would be structuring my scheme largely around cade to start like but i would also want to keep guys like jeremy grant and killian hayes around and by the way like i've heard very good things about killian hayes this summer you know you never want to dive too deep into the workouts and the um you know the oh my god this guy's highlight tape looks amazing the uh the ball is life uh highlight culture. But I heard really good things about the way Killian Hayes looks uh so far this summer. So I, I would want to keep some of those guys around, but I, I would want to do it just in case Cade proves that he's not quite ready to have the ball in his hands for you know eighty five you know percent of a game uh when he's on the court early on. I would want to have different options. I would want to have different options to be able to present. And I think like Jeremy Grant makes a lot of sense to have on that roster for at least the first half of the season, because I don't think Jeremy Grant's trade value is really falling off of a cliff all that much between now and let's say February when the trade deadline hits. Would you agree?
1: Broadly? Yeah. I mean, there's always a chance of injury, but the, the, I don't know that the teams that need forwards are desperate enough right now. Like I, I, that, The ebb and flow of a couple of guys' trade value is going to be so fascinating. Jeremy Grant's one of them. If Ben Simmons doesn't get moved, Ben Simmons' trade value is going to be wild over the next six months. And with Grant, part of it is seeing what Cade Cunningham is, and part of it is just where are you as a team? Because – My inclination is I I, you know, as I see things for Detroit, one more rough year and then you you add you add one more high level piece and then probably try to make the move out then. You might you know, maybe you even would try to do one more, but it depends on where things are. But if Cunningham is not only the rookie of the year, but like looking like he's going to be a very good starter very soon. Then you start to think about this timeline a little differently. And I, I'm not saying, you know, it's a great idea for Tom Gores to be putting his foot on the accelerator right away, but the optionality I think is a very good part of it for them. And as you said, I don't think the offers are going to change dramatically. And then the other part of it, though the one thing that would get me to push theoretically on Jeremy Grant, and this is why I, I wouldn't necessarily right now because I don't think this is the case, is if there isn't a better way to use that $20 million, like let's say there's a player that is a good young fit that is a part of it that you can lock up that you think is under market or is more gettable than you would expect, whether it's through a trade or through free agency. And I don't know who that player is. Like I don't see the, the kind of second draft guys aren't a great fit. I like Taylor Horton Tucker, but I don't love his fit in Detroit with this group. I think that it's, it's right. not necessarily what you're looking for. So, yeah, there are guys like josh i when you say the
2: twenty million dollars, do you mean the twenty million dollars that Jeremy grant yes. is being so, paid, or yeah. do you mean because they have like pretty close to twenty exactly, they, no, but they, so what they, I'm saying, saying is closer. like
1: if you can really do something with forty million. Or sure. thirty-five or thirty, you know, you have to take a little bit back to make a trade work. Then, you know, because there are there are marginal differences here that can be that can be extremely important. You know, the difference between twenty million and thirty million in a certain year can be huge, or forty and fifty. You know, all these different ones. Like that's, you know, the the ultimate modern example of that was the Brooklyn Nets clearing that bad money a couple of years ago, and that allowed them to theoretically, you know, to fit in. Durant and Irving, it ended up using a more complicated mechanism, but that was really the idea was that they needed that, the benefit of another 15 mil.
2: And do you, do you feel like the piss, do you feel like that really exists this year? Because I, no, I don't really.
1: I don't. Yeah. And and that's, and that actually gets into, you know, it's funny, we're recording this roughly, you know, less than 24 hours until the start of free agency. To me, the most There's... interesting concept that if it, some of this stems out of the draft because of the transactions that, the, that Detroit made and New Orleans immediately before the draft and, Dallas with the Josh Richardson deal is that I've always kind of thought of it in two two ways, which is, you know, just being a realist about how the NBA actually works. So you're either clearing space because you're optimistic or you're clearing space because you're knowledgeable. And so, for example, the Brooklyn Nets, when they when they cleared that space with Atlanta, I think they were knowledgeable. I think they had an idea of who whether whether the the deals weren't signed, but I think they had a pretty good idea that if they cleared this money, good things were going to happen. And there are plenty of examples of that in recent vintage of things that got set up or that didn't need to get set up because you could do it after the fact. The Warriors with KD is an obvious one too. But there are also examples of teams making those sorts of precursor moves, hoping that something was going to present itself, but not knowing it. And so for me, one of the best Recent things with that was all the teams that maintained 2021 cap space, and then Giannis yeah. signed his extension. So Dallas and Miami, and then Miami signed Bam, and Toronto to some extent. Um Like, those teams, they sacrificed- Certain players, they sacrificed opportunities to spend in 2020 in particular, would through trades or through free agency, because the idea that they were going to be able to get a great player. And then not only Giannis signed the extension, though that's the most big, significant one, but also uh, all the other guys that signed, ex- signed extensions too. And so that's what's really interesting to me about New Orleans and Detroit in particular and Dallas to a lesser extent, because I, I'm just a little bit more optimistic about what they, what they can do. But it is, what do they know? One.
2: Both both of those teams are closer than Detroit, though. Sure. Like, I, I think that both Dallas and New Orleans can make a reasonable case for trying to push some chips in. Now. They,
1: they can, but so that's why New Orleans to me is the is the most compelling because Dallas, you know, they have Luca. There's a sales pitch there. Like when you saw what they sacrificed, and I, I thought it was a good deal. We wrote, we did a, you know, um, was I mean, I wrote about this extensively. That I it was with Seth. Um, about
2: it's just with Seth. It was yeah, just with
1: Seth. I, I thought. We were it was
2: fine,
1: yeah. But, yeah. but so for me, the New Orleans, the, the big trade for them was a reasonable piece of business. Either way, it's just much better if you actually do something good with that money. Like it was just just in terms of what they gave up and what they what you know getting off of Bledsoe and everything else. Like they saved tw- over twenty million for the following season for 22-23, and I think that could be really significant. Right. But
2: well, and they saved potentially four million or, or it was between four and five million over the course of the next four years by not stretching Bledsoe as well. Right. Having right. said that, like, if they don't sign anyone this summer, and that, that's why this trade is, like, kind of like an incomplete grade until we see what they sign, like, they probably would have been better off just stretching Bledsoe. Well, and, and,
1: and that's the the real – so. Our colleague John Hollinger has written really well about the bird rights trap, and that is a very real thing that's like, you know, if I can't do anything else with this, and you see some really rough multi-year contracts there. Absolutely. There is another one, which is the cap space burning a hole in your pocket. And especially when that general manager is under pressure to, to make power moves as quickly as possible. And I think that there is that real risk. So there are certain teams, I think of San Antonio in this vein, that... Really could if they wanted to. Try some things. See who you can get. You know, talk to John Collins. Talk to some of the other young guys. Maybe Horton Tucker if they like him. I think that Horton Tucker, because he's not a great shooter, he's a weird fit with them. But, you know, some of those guys. And then truly, like— So so
2: we, we think he's a weird fit with them based off of, like, you know, real basketball, modern basketball thought. But based off of the way they played the last few years, are we sure they think he's a bad fit with them?
1: We are not sure. And, and so, <laughs> I, I, that's a really funny point. Um, but I think that, so, but, so, so San Antonio can credibly try their hardest, do some things, and they can also do a mix between these two. And then if the right player isn't available at the right price, roll summer all of that money over to next year. Hope that, you know, they have a lot of their key players locked in. It's not like there's a huge opportunity cost. In fact, I would say there's a bigger cost of signing the wrong guys than there is of not signing it, not signing anyone to a significant long-term deal. And I think they might actually do that New Orleans, I would say it's better to it's better to spend to not spend it all than to spend foolishly foolishly for them because you think about the flexibility that they could have in twenty two and if Zion keeps growing and I don't know that New Orleans like what they are as a destination, but also just potentially being open for a trade you know like there there are all sorts of other options that aren't necessarily gaps space.
2: Well, and, well, the team that does that really well in, in regard to like knowing how to use their cap space via trade is Memphis.
1: Yes, right. Well, they like, do, except that they were very willing to take on shitty money in the to what became the Justice Winslow deal. But yeah. I mean, and it, it didn't work out. And part of that was hard to foresee. Part of that was also Justice Winslow getting hurt when Justice Winslow being hurt is the whole reason that he was trade that he was acquirable in the first place. Totally, but
2: yeah. the, they took a risk and it didn't yeah. pan out. And and
1: right? it and it yeah. did it did pan out for them, kind of on both sides of it with Iguodala. I mean, yes, it's true that the Iguodala sending him out trade didn't work as well for them, but the whole point of it was we got this player with an asset, and then we got off yep. of them also for an asset. And, and so I think that it's it's interesting to see how some of these teams handle it. And then the other one, they didn't make as many aggressive moves other than moving off of some draft picks. But it's. The question of what do they think they're going to be able to do, what can they do, and what are they actually going to end up doing? Because like some of these teams seem very optimistic, and the reason why that's so daunting for me, like as as somebody who wants every team to be well run and wants every team to be successful, even though teams being poorly run and unsuccessful can having a small number of them can be good for my work, but there aren't that many players. Like that's the, the yep. we, we talked a yes. lot at various moments in yes. time about there not being that many cap space teams and there not being that much money out there. And I mean, I've written about that at like The Athletic. What happened when all those good players signed extensions wasn't just that. It wasn't the thinning of the demand. It was the thinning of the supply that was the huge problem. And so yes. there are really only, I would say it's like five to six players in this class that if we're thinking about, the next couple years. Like there are guys that I like more on a long-term basis. John Collins being among them. Duncan Robinson is in a different place because he's already 27. But the players who's like, okay, this is like, you add this player, that's a big cog. And they're big cog for, you know, and so obviously Kawhi, though he's hurt and CP. But like once you get past Lowry, Connolly, and I'm more optimistic on Spencer Dinwiddie than almost anybody, those kinds of players aren't really available. And so also it doesn't appear that those types of players who are under contract are available either because various teams, including the Golden State Warriors, appear to have been looking for them, and nobody wants to trade them.
2: Yeah, like what I'm what I'm trying to figure out is like how teams spend this money. So, like, let's just kind of run through the top free agents, right? Uh, reports say you know Kawhi Leonard has opted out, but is likely to sign with the Clippers, right? Sure. Uh, Chris Paul. Chris Paul is opting out. I, I don't know. Let's just say, like, I don't know what's going to happen with Chris Paul.
1: Oh, let's say – I'll say more likely than not he's with the Suns, but it's not 100%. It's just significantly over 50%.
2: Sure. Mike Conley, it seems likely, is going to resign in Utah, Mm -hmm. right? Like, they're clearing space to do it. Yeah, and if if he
1: leaves, it's going to be for some – like, it's going to be for something ridiculous.
2: John Collins, um, you know, would take nine figures to pry him out of Atlanta, and I think Atlanta still might match. I think it's highly likely he stays there. Jared Allen, Cleveland has seemed to make it pretty clear that they're going to re-sign him. Okay, sure. Demar DeRozan, I think is available. So like, that's one. Kyle Lowry's available. That's two. Lonzo Ball seems available. That's three. Then we get into like, Tim Hardaway, Dinwiddie. Norman Powell, Dinwiddie. Uh, you know, Duncan Robinson, Derek Rose, Dennis Schroeder, Rashawn Holmes, um, like (laughs) Lowry Markinen, uh, it seems like Will Barton might resign with Denver. Yeah. Uh, Yvonne Fournier, but like these are, these guys are like solid starters and I don't mean to discredit them by any stretch of the imagination, but I mean, these are all solid starters that like you want for, 14 million dollars a year, not 20 million dollars a year.
1: Well, and it's not, uh, like it's not, is, not only, like, it's not only that, but it's where do they fit in? Like, I mean, a, a right. lot of those players, I, I really like Evan Fournier, and I think he can make a team better, but if he is the best player that the Knicks get with their 50 million in cap space, they're probably not the most, you know, it's, it's not gonna make as much right. of a difference. It'll make a difference, but it's not gonna make as much. And so, That's the part of it.
2: You brought up you brought up Detroit earlier. Like the thing that worries me most about Detroit is them signing Dennis Schroeder to like a four year seventy million dollar contract. Right. Because they're trying to like get an athletic guard that they think can play with both Killian Hayes and Cade Cunningham. Like that would terrify me if I was a Detroit fan.
1: And so some of these teams that have that have cleared space aren't going to get their top targets. Like that is inevitable. And what made it so interesting to me is like there was there was Immediate buzz when it happened and justifiably so that when New Orleans scores to space, like, oh, there, you know, there have been murmurs that they were interested in Kyle Lowry before. And that's true. But if the money is close to similar, is Kyle Lowry really going to choose New Orleans over Miami right. or 77s? Maybe, right. maybe, but like it's. And you can get the money pretty close.
2: basically anywhere at this point because there's enough gap space
1: and like does lowry like is he going to prioritize that extra two million if that's really what it is and so i i'm wondering when all the chairs you know there are probably like five extra people walking around the musical chairs than there are chairs and what in the world are they going to do when the music stops i i have no idea I am not real
2: sure either to be honest. And like I'm, if you're I'm guessing
1: it will work out for some of them and there are other good players. There are players that you and I both like and if you can get them, you know like Daniel Tice for example. Like one of those teams with cap space could do a lot worse than Daniel Tice with like 9 to 10 million of their money on a short term deal. Like yep. yeah, by all means. Like I like
2: another guys like Kelly Olinick. Like Kelly sure. Olinick had a great close to last season with Houston. Um, Kelly Linux, good basketball player who can help or, you, especially in the regular season, he can help you win games. Or should like, you choose
1: to want to do this, Nick, Nicola Batum, or Danny Green to a lesser extent, or like some of these point guards, like, you know, like, yeah, if you add Patty Mills to your rotation, or you add Reggie Jackson to your rotation, you're going to be better. You're going to be a better team. Um, but, the years are going to be extremely important on all those guys. And also what do they want? Because a lot of the, a lot of the kind of second tier players in this class are older veterans that have had mixed kind of a, a variety of experiences in terms of team success. Reggie Jackson's a great example of this. Nick Batum is too. There is a chance that Nick Batum gets offered significantly more money than he takes from somewhere just because there aren't that many wing-sized guys that can shoot and defend. And he's not the greatest shooter, but he can also move the ball well and everything like that. But it's also possible that Nick Lopatum goes, you know, I Charlotte was paying – you know, I had that crazy big deal with them. I got a year with the Clippers. Things fell a little – got a little haywire. But that was really fun. Like that was more fun than what I'd done the last few years. It was more like when he was in Portland in the early going. Maybe I would rather have a $6 million contract, you know, take the taxpayer MLE, whether it's with the Clippers or elsewhere – And then, then like 12 million somewhere else. Like that's entirely possible to me. Reggie Jackson's kind of the same way. But it's also possible that they're like, hey, you know, like money's great. I can have a, like a lot of those teams can offer bigger roles to some extent. So. That that gets into another weird thing is it's just like well maybe Reggie Jackson is thinking about his free agency one way but then all of a sudden Team X maybe it's New Orleans has twenty million in space and they offer that to you and you're like well crap now I'm choosing between ten million with the Clippers and twenty million ver- or shooters or you know like that sort of thing and I really don't know how that goes either. Well,
2: and this is where we start getting into like a, a big a big thing that like I often hear with. Like why there aren't good professional basketball player like broadcasters basically. There are, there are a few of them that like played in the NBA that are like awesome at this. Like Richard Jefferson's really good at this I think, right? But there are other guys that are like not very good. I think it's getting really hard to woo like former NBA players to be like – Hey, you made $170 million in your career. Come hang out on ESPN and like have to do work every day. I think it's going to be kind of the same thing with free agency coming up here. Like Nikola Batum has made like $170 million in his NBA career so far. That is a wild number, right? Nicola Batum, like, he doesn't need the money. And I wonder if there are some team, some players out there that are going to be like, look, if, if I can, like you kind of said, like, if I can take. Thirteen million from you know Charlotte, or frankly the Knicks, or I can take six million to go play for the Clippers, or I can take six million to go play for you know the Lakers. Right? I would not be stunned if Nick Batum was just like, I want to go have fun, I want to go play for the Lakers. I have made like even with this six million dollars, six million dollars over four years, I'm going to be at damn near two hundred million dollars that I've made. In my career, like I don't, I don't need the money. Like uh, NBA, like players, like we we can talk about like people building generational wealth. Like Rashawn Holmes, Rashawn Holmes probably going to go for the money because Rashawn Holmes has made I think like thirteen million dollars in his career so far, and this is his chance to build like generational wealth. And it's and a great game.
1: and it's a great time for him to do it after a successful season with Sacramento.
2: Absolutely. Like Nick Batum, <laughs> Nick Batum is set, man. Like that dude's good. Otto Porter, like Otto Porter's set. Like he doesn't need that. Um I- I'm trying to think like who else? Like frankly, like, Kelly Alinek has made like quite a bit of money in his career at this point. Yeah, and,
1: and I will never fault them to if if they want to maximize their if they want to maximize their income and create that generational oh, and keep it going. More power how, to how it. Much, how much
2: how much money do you think Ennis Cantor has made in his career?
1: A lot. I mean, he got that full max contract and he's he's done well. I would get gu- I would guess he's probably around eighty million.
2: Ennis Cantor has made a hundred million dollars in wow. his career. Wow, like, incredible. We're just like. Jeff, Jeff Green has made $75 million in his career.
1: And he's been uh, on minimum contracts for like three years.
2: Paul Millsap has made almost $200 million in his career. Like these guys, they can take the minimum and they can be good. Like sure, the Players Association might be like, hey, like take some money, like do well for yourself. But these are the guys – like some of these guys are going to be like – like Danny Green has made $85 million in his career. He might just be like, I want to go play for the Lakers. Let's go play for the Lakers again. <laughs> Um, um
1: speak, so, like, speaking th- speaking of sorry sorry to interrupt speaking of the optimism versus realism part of this uh Woj put out a more detailed report basically saying that the Miami Heat are strong frontrunners to land Kyle Lowry via sign and trade when it happens and included within it is that um is that New Orleans and Dallas are two teams that had like that strong interest in Lowry who are beginning to search elsewhere for starting point guard help it kind, yeah. kind of seems like we might be knowing where that's going.
2: Yeah. Like, it. it I mean, look, Kyle Lowry is – I mean, like, put it this way. Woj has the deal in here. It's going to be Goran Drogic and Precious Atchua.
1: And maybe like. there's another pick or something else. But, like, yeah. And, the- by the
2: way, can we talk about the Raptors taking Precious and, and like, saying he's the guy we want after taking Scotty Barnes at four in the 2021 NBA draft?
1: Yeah. That's definitely something. And – It's, yeah, I mean, what Masai Ujiri is going to do with the Raptors from this point, like, it's, I think it's the most underappreciated story for the casual, for the more casual NBA fan, because any path that they choose is going to have these massive ripple effects. Like, if they end up trading some of these players, like they're going to make bigger ripples, like the the then former Raptors, if that's the path they go, will make bigger ripples than most of the free agents that sign, like even most of the high-end free agents that sign, you know, like Van Vleet and Siakam, if he gets moved, and Obi, who I don't think should get moved, but if he gets moved, Kyle Lowry, obviously, um, though that's a little bit co- more complicated because it does and does not involve the Raptors depending on what he wants to do. So, like, all of that is wild, um, and also, like, yeah, they could get Goran Dragic. They could also be flipping Dragic as well. Like, that could be something that happens here. Maybe Dragic goes to the Raps in that, but then goes to the Mavericks once they strike out another point guard. There's so, like, that's part of the beauty of the moratorium.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting one. That's um, a really interesting one. It so could be that.
1: Another place I want to go with you during the course of this is Houston. And but I mean, I'm sorry. I, I just want to go close ahead. the loop
2: real quick. Like, I, I just bring up that all of these players might end up taking, like, lesser deals to go play for contenders. Just in regard to your point that there really might be a lot of money left over. Yes. Like like Mitchell Robinson, they, they hit the team option button on Mitchell Robinson. That was a guy that probably would have made like $15 million on the market and taken up a bunch of cap space. He's now making two this year yeah. so like that's another guy that you know not not gonna be eating up a lot of space like no, we're gonna they, see they some could dudes. they could
1: theoretically do a renegotiation and extension with him like that maybe there's True. some sort of understanding of you know if we don't do other things we could do that but Truth. it's yeah it's really interesting so so where I wanted to go was was Houston and a part of that is Jalen green I I love the film on him very excited about what Jalen Green can be not you know, like a surefire superstar, but has the building blocks. And I am actually, I'm excited about what he can be on ball. Like the passing stuff isn't all the way there, but I think it could get there. But then Rafael Stone in the front office really going after it and getting Shangoon, getting Usman Garuba and his fascinating buyout and getting Josh Christopher and four rookie scale guys that looks like, I mean, they might not all come over because we don't know what the hell is going on with Garuba, but that is that is one fascinating rookie class.
2: Yeah. I, I loved what they did at the draft, if only because I love any time that a team can get three of my top 11 players in the draft, right? Like, that seems pretty good. Uh, I, I And, and do so but, with only
1: one lottery pick.
2: And to do so with only one lottery pick, although they move two first-rounders in the future. Not, like, you know... Lowly protected or highly protected first rounders, but protected first rounders nonetheless. Um, They move these picks to get Shangun. Like I think that they did really well. I really like the mix of Garuba and Shangun together because you know Shangun, what is his concern? What do you do with him on defense? What is Usman Garuba's concern? Uh, What do you do with him on offense? They're going to complement each other really, really well. Garuba is one of the best teenage defenders I've ever evaluated. He is. Unfucking believable in terms of the way that he reads and reacts to plays on the defensive end. He's 6'8 with a seven two wingspan. So he is
1: on ready that. To play what do you What do you think NBA. his Guguruba's ideal role defensively in the NBA is? Is it Is it as a like one on one defender? Is it a help defending four? Like what do you What is what do you see as his best path right now?
2: I would like to play him at the five more because what I think he is best at right now is defending in multiple different pick-and-roll coverages. Mm -hmm. And if we can get him being the big defender in the screen and roll more more often than not, you're probably winning. The problem is that if you keep Shengguen on the floor with him, you're probably reducing that effectiveness a little bit, right? Because teams are going to bring Shengguen up. And unless you're like pre-switching the ball screen, which is really hard to do in the NBA... Um, you're often going to end up with Shangun being the guy involved, but Garuba is also a really, really good help defender who will help, uh, generally cover for Shangun if he gets beaten off the bounce. Um, so I-, I would prefer to play him at the five. I think you're probably going to see him play a lot of the five, um, if and when Houston makes the playoffs, right? Which who knows if that'll be this year or not. Um,
1: I- I'm pretty confident it won't be this year, though so I would love to. Yeah, right.
2: Out. I think they're probably the worst team in the NBA right now, but that's okay because they have a lot of high upside guys now. Like I think Garuba can, given his defensive ability in pick and roll, given his versatility in on-ball coverages, given how smart he is as a help defender, genuinely believe that guy can be an all-defense guy. I also think that Chengun can be like a 20-point-per-game guy at some point if it goes right in terms of his development with his jumper. I, I think he's probably going to shoot it at some point, but if you buy into his jumper and you buy into the fact that he has these skills as a playmaker, as uh, a driver uh, that he showed earlier this year with das. Uh If you buy into the skills that he has just in terms of feel for the game, falling into the soft spots of defensive coverage is really well. Um, you know, finding those driving lanes and, and being able to use his body control to actually hit them well and maneuver to the basket He's a really impressive offensive player, so they got two really high-level one-way players. But at sixteen and twenty-three, you're probably going to find one-way players for the most part.
1: Yeah, that's true, and it is a a realistic consequence of, of the way the draft works. And I'm part of what I'm excited about with Houston's draft is that they have a lot of guys who who could work, and I'm I don't know them well enough to be confident on whether they will or will not but they took a lot of bites at the apple at a time when that makes a lot of sense. And so they they have future picks coming from various teams. The the really intriguing ones are are later, are later in the process. Yeah. We'll see what the Nets look like in 26, for example. But also what they gave up so the, the picks that they gave up in the, uh, the move were to 16 were these pretty reasonably protected firsts that, you know, could become seconds or the, the most likely to be non lottery picks, like that, or maybe like the low, yep. low end lottery picks. And if that's what it takes to move up for somebody that you really like or to move into the draft, cause they didn't even give up, um, tw- 22 or 20 or sorry, 23 or 24. 23 and 24. Are they didn't. Yeah. And, and, and so that is. That's, a, I think that's a nice way to do it. And it was so interesting to see them make that decision with the only other team that I could, well, one of the only other teams that I could see taking things the same way, which is the Oklahoma City Thunder, because it's like, okay, you have so many picks, use those resources to get the per, to get somebody that you believe in, whether it's in this year's draft or in 22 or in 23 or through a trade, you know, like just, okay, we have, we have an ungodly amount of stuff we can use we, we can we can basically outbid everybody for this kind of thing if, yeah. if, if, we, if we have what the other team values. And so this wasn't Houston pushing all their chips in or anything like that, but it was pushing some chips in that teams wouldn't do and I like I like that. I think that that is you know it's not always going to work, but I like that approach, especially with lower end first round picks. I think yeah. that's a nice way to do it, and these aren't like trash picks. they're like, you okay, you have Utahs first, and everybody thinks they're gonna be really good next year like those are those are something different where those are low low ceiling relatively low floor, like you kind of know where they're going to be. This is a little bit different, but they're also more nebulous assets. So I think that using some of those to go after somebody that you really like is is a good use of capital.
2: So, and on the flip side of that, can we go to Oklahoma City? Sure. Because... I actually didn't really love what they did on draft night. Um, I think that they, I think the idea of what they did makes sense. Like, they take Josh Giddy, right? Like, I'm fine with them taking Josh Giddy at six at the end of the day. Like, I have him a little bit lower, but Josh Giddy was their guy. Like, they really wanted Giddy. Go for it, right? And I think they did like genuinely try to move up on draft night and just couldn't do it or tried to move up like throughout the week and just couldn't do it, right? Um, I didn't like the fact that they moved Shangun essentially because I thought that they should have just taken Shangun for these two lower-end picks. Maybe they had a much lower grade than I did on Shangun, but I had him at like eight. Uh, I-, I would just rather have that lottery-type guy. They took Treyman at 18, who I'm also not a huge fan of. And then they moved 34 and 36 – for just to move up two spaces,
1: that was that was the like the Knicks pulling the best piece of arbitrage in the draft again is fantastic, and it was yeah. so weird from OKC. Like you're right, in some ways that is a similar situation, but it's like also I don't know Jeremiah Robinson Earl. Like maybe he's awesome, maybe he ends up being great, but it's like it seemed yeah. weird. Look,
2: I'm on the higher end on Robinson Earl. I had him at 30, like I have him as a first round grade. I think he's a completely reasonable pick at 32. I, I just would rather have 34 and 36 and take the guys, especially the, the Knicks took that I also had first round grades on in Rokos Yacobitis and Deuce McBride. Like I, I thought they handled it very strangely For a team that has this many assets, like on some level, they accumulated assets uh, by moving 16 for two future first, like they kicked the can down the road, which is reasonable whenever you're in this building process still. And then they also, like, moved up two spaces by giving up another semi-premium pick to get Jeremiah Robinson Earl, who's, like, a fine player. But so, like, on some level, they cashed in picks as well. Like, I would have rather – like, frankly, like, if I was them, I would have just held on to 34, taken Rokas Yakubitis as a stash player because that's what he is this year. He's a stash guy. He's going to stay at Barcelona, it seems like. Um, and then stayed at 36 and taken – x y and z hopefully jeremiah robinson earl falls to them uh maybe they knew something i didn't in terms of you know maybe orlando was considering taking jeremiah robinson earl i'm a little skeptical of that at 33 or maybe they knew that the clippers were trading in and liked robinson earl and instead they took preston i don't know um but i would have rather just kept 36 use 34 as the stash that the knicks did it it was just a weird it was a weird night for the thunder i guess i'm not I, I don't totally. I can't wrap my head around what they did. I thought it was strange.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And I was, I was, I was hoping we would get there because you know those players better than I do. It was like, as in terms of asset management, it was strange. But you know, there are times that asset management can look weird, and you end up getting the right player, and it works out. I mean, right. The as, as things are looking right now, the Cam Johnson play is, is a pretty reasonable example of that like they moved down, they got somebody, and he's, things are working out pretty well. Yep.
2: Yeah. No. I think I think it's a reasonable move. Like I understand what they did. I think I just don't agree with the strategy, maybe. And Sam Preston's smarter than I am, so like maybe we should just like default to Sam being really good at this. But um yeah, no, I, I didn't I didn't love the way they handled things, to be honest.
1: I'll do one other quick hitter and then we can get into some some other stuff. Um, I only really did detailed scouts on six guys and then I did light kind of things on three more. And the Warriors ended up with two of those players. I thought they did very well. As somebody who yeah. saw more of the guys that I didn't see. Do you agree?
2: Yeah, I thought they did great. I had uh, Kamingo with a better grade than Scotty Barnes, which I believe Same you did movie. as well. Didn't I you? did. Yeah. Um, and then I had Moses Moody at number seven. I think people are like underrating a little bit what his potential shot creation upside is. Everyone's kind of thinking of him as like, oh, he's six foot six. He's a 3 and D guy. He's not an explosive athlete. I don't know, man. Like... He is 19 years old. He hasn't had a ton of reps as like a shot creator. I kind of think that there's some shot creation upside there given that this was really the first time in a couple years he's been asked to create a shot and he's pretty damn good at it without having a ton of experience at it at Arkansas. So I kind of – dig what they did I I think they did really well by hanging out at 14 and just taking Moses Moody who I think like like I I think they had a top 10 grade on him because everything that I heard pre-draft was um they I couldn't figure out where they were on Kaminga to be honest in comparison to some of these other guys but I thought that you know I'd heard Moses Moody there I'd heard Josh Giddy there and I'd heard Franz Wagner there and I'd heard that um, you know, those three were the guys at the top of their board along with James Booknight and Kaminga. So um, I, I would imagine that that was probably their like five to 10 range or six to 10 range on their board. And like, I, I would, I would think that they're ecstatic with what they ended up with by just holding Pat at seven and 14 and not giving up additional assets.
1: I did not share this publicly because I didn't do a full scout on him. So it is a preliminary rating rather than like the guys that do full scouts. Cause then I feel like, okay, I'll stand by those rankings. But in my, based on the limited film, you know, I watched, I think an hour and a half, two hours of Moody. I actually had him over Barnes too. Um Because yeah. the idea that I, I like, there's a lot that I really like about Scotty Barnes. I think that his communication on defense is really intriguing. You know, there are ways that his ball handling and and his his vision can really work well, but I think Barnes' shot is more broken than either Kaminga or, I mean, Moody doesn't, his shot isn't broken at all. Like, he has a good shot. And the value at, the additional value that Barnes has as a defender is very good. Like, I like Barnes a lot as a defender. I think he, he will be better than Kaminga. I'm pretty confident. I, I'm, I'm not sure of it, but I'm confident of it. But it's like, how important is that margin? Like, I don't think that he's necessarily going to be like the best defender on a really good defensive team. I think they can both be successful parts. Maybe Barnes is a little higher in the pecking order. But, the reason why I'm more a little bit lower on Barnes, and I mean this is still high in the class. Like I mean, I have those guys in the same tier. Is for Barnes, it's sort of an argument that I've made a couple other times before, which is if the if if the flaw doesn't correct, there's just it's just hard to make that player work on in a lot of circumstances. And and like not as a you know like, as a, like the thir- second or third best player in a really good team, and it could work as the fourth or fifth maybe. But like that part of the Barnes story. And here's hoping, I, I really, it's, I mean, Mike Schmitz talked with Nate about how great he is as a person. I'm sure you have similar, similar anecdotes. He seems like a really good dude, yeah. hard worker, big part of a lot of successful entities, whether we're talking about his high school or Florida State or Team USA.
2: Yeah. No, no, you'll, you'll never hear a bad word by anyone about Scotty Barnes. Anyone who's been around him, like and I've talked to a lot of people that have spent a lot of time with him. Anyone who's been around him says a ton of positive things. And so, like, I I want
1: him to succeed. I want, I want Toronto to solve these, to solve these things. But it's like, if, if that doesn't happen to like a reasonable degree. Then there just there aren't as many other paths as there are for Moody, who it's easy for him to be a low usage guy in a good team. It's it's a less valuable thing than what Barnes could be, and I think Moody, as you said, has untapped, underappreciated potential to be a larger role within the offense. And Kaminga, I mean, his feel, his passing are are good. His shot is weird, and he took a lot of bad ones. But there is an element of, of Kaminga, actually, interestingly, that I'm not saying to the same extreme as Anthony Edwards, but the idea that part of the reason his efficiency stuff looks so bad is because he was in an unrealistic role, and that's, you know, part of what G League Night was, that was definitely part of the theory of the case with UGA, and... I think that Kamingo, like, generally speaking, I bet on I bet on players that seem like they have decent basketball IQ because those players, like, they can make the strides on defense like Ben Simmons did, or they can slide more easily into a smaller role on offense because they can do these other things well, and oftentimes they're very good athletes.
2: Yeah, like I think the jury's out on Jonathan Kamingo's basketball IQ. Like he's made some That's high fair. level passes, but I mean, just given the lack of effort level on defense this year, I think it's hard to say where he settles in in regard to just like – defensive feel for the game not because he's a bad feel for the game defender i think it's just because he wasn't locked in enough to where we know if he's a bad yeah like, and, or and he's good i mean
1: this. effort effort is an extremely important part of that and i've tried to couch myself on guys that don't necessarily bring it and it's not like he's the same type of player as ben simmons in any way shape or form uh it is it is interesting uh to, to see how that's going to work out for kaminka and it's going to take time even if he ends up being good, which is no guarantee, yep. I mean, I think his floor is lower than most players taken that I know in the lottery. There are a lot of guys that I don't know well. Um, yeah, but at a certain point, and that point is probably higher than the seventh pick. You just have to roll the dice there. Um, yeah, I an, agree. Another team that I but thought, like,
2: but like the just, thing is that we're we're comparing Scotty Barnes to like um, Moses Moody and to Jonathan Kaminga. They took him over Jalen Suggs, right? Like, which is. Like crazy pants to me.
1: Yeah, and I mean the biggest winner there is Orlando, and I think that Orlando getting Jalen Suggs this this year when when it looked like there was a top four, and I wasn't the biggest Jalen Suggs believer. I, I think he can be a very good player, but in terms of like whether he's the guy offensively, but Orlando is going to have multiple bites at the apple. I don't think they're good enough to like you know at this stage to like really push beyond. Maybe they'll compete for the play in, but I, I'm not entirely sure.
2: No, and they'll get, they'll be like a top 10 defense and like one of the five worst offenses in the league next right.
1: year. Right. And so that is getting Suggs and then having more bites at the apple is so good for them because Suggs can fit alongside a lot of other talented players and because they need as many guys with a lot of potential as they can get.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, like, I I love Jalen Suggs. I had him at number two. I think he's going to be a monster. But part of the reason that I love Jalen Suggs is I think that, like, he slots in so perfectly as the number two option on, like, a title contention, like, team, basically. He might not be the number one guy, but I think he's probably going to average, like, 20 points and five rebounds and five assists a game and play, like, extremely, extremely high-level defense. That probably isn't good enough to be a number one guy. You're right. But it's probably good enough to be Drew Holiday. And he might even have like a little bit more offensive game than Drew Holiday did coming out of UCLA. So I, I don't know, man. Like I, I I can't really wrap my head around taking what we saw from Scotty Barnes offensively this year and taking him over um over someone who is a potential perimeter all-star level player in Jalen Suggs. Mm-hmm. it's it, it's and it's hard for me to have that conversation because I really like genuinely am an enormous fan of Scotty Barnes I like really want Scotty Barnes to be very good and I hope above all that he is amazing but man like I I, I am struggling to uh to see how that goes better in terms of like an upside play than what Jalen sucks has
1: we both have limited time left so I thought a a fun exercise could be really wherever in the draft you want to go a couple of players that you particularly like their fit with the team that they ended up on
2: oh that's a good one I actually haven't answered this question yet Yay! Um, Yeah, typically I do it after the draft every year. I do like a, um, like a little recap and I pick my five favorite, but I haven't, I haven't thought about it yet. This is a good one. Um, Jalen Suggs probably would be number one for me just because you look at what they have in their backcourt right now. I think he can play with all three of the guys that they have right now. Like he is a perfect connected tissue piece in addition to being the guy, like he is the star there now. Um, like you can play him at the two next to, and like have him be like an initiating two next to Cole Anthony, like trying to go get buckets. You can play him as the, uh, as the one next to RJ Hampton where RJ can just go get buckets and he can take on tough defensive assignments. You can play him next to Markel Fultz, I think pretty easily because he can go get a bucket. So I, I would say that one is number one, like outside of Cade Cunningham to me because Cade just fits everywhere. Uh, I, I would say Jalen Suggs is number like one B or whatever we're going to say. Um, in terms of other fits, you know, I really like the Trey Murphy fit just an elite shooter. in And that, New that was one I uh, thought of as well. Yeah. They, they desperately need someone like that. Uh, I like the idea of what Kai Jones can be in that up-tempo New Orleans offense next to Lamella Ball because Kai Jones is one of the best athletes in this draft, uh, at 6 foot 11. You know, he's a former long jumper in the Bahamas. Like, he's gonna have some fun out on the break with Lamella. Um, You know, one guy that in terms of fit, like, I have not been a fan of Jalen Johnson throughout this process. Like, he just has not been, like, it's not my favorite player type, Um, you know, not my favorite in terms of just, you know, like, he ups and leaves Duke, he ups and leaves IMG Academy. There's, you know, let's just say that there are background questions that teams were parsing through, right? Um. I love the fit in Atlanta. I think it's like the absolute best situation for him to be successful. Uh, He is like the perfect guy to play screen and roll with Trey Young with. Like if you want to play him as like a four or a small ball five even, and teams are always going to blitz Trey coming off those ball screens. They're either going to try and switch them if they can, or they're going to put two on the ball. And you need that release valve guy. And Jalen Johnson can be as good of a release valve like – uh, short role playmaker in four-on-three situations, as you will find. Uh, if he's going to be successful, playing next to Trey Young, I think is about as good of a place as he could have asked to hope to like end up uh, if his career is going to go well. I-, I like Bones Highland in Denver quite a bit. I think that that's um, just as a scorer. Uh, he'll be able to step in, and I think that some of the dribble handoff stuff that he can run with Nikola Jokic, some of the off-ball actions he can run with Jokic is going to be really fun. Um, I, I would say those are the ones that really stood out to me. Corey Kispert, just because the Wizards like desperately need shooting, that stands out as well.
1: Yeah, I'm happy you brought up Bones. I've only watched a little bit on him. I know Seth loves him, and a lot of a lot of other people do. But in a place where the the Nuggets have so much offensive talent that they can kind of take all comers, like it's it, playing with Jokic yeah. is just such an interesting experience because they can do that. And I, you know, I would, that was that's part of why I was so excited about R.J. Hampton there, and then R.J. Hampton is now. A magician. And so that is a uh you know, that another like player that's really interesting in their rotation. Um but I, I think that Bones, you know, like the ability to kind of let him be what he'll be and that if he's good enough Especially in some ways, with Jamal Murray being out for a, a, sadly an extended portion of this season. If yeah. he's good, then there's space for him. If, there, if he's not, then that's fine. Then he'll get time playing in the G League and everything else, and you know, being getting mentoring wherever they want to put him. And so that's that's interesting. I yeah, I'm I, it's going to be fun. Like I mean, I'm going to have a much clearer idea of these guys in about two weeks. Um, but it's a, it seems like a really interesting class. Yeah, it
2: is. Um, again, like we, we mentioned it at the top, or I did, like the perimeter talent in this class is awesome. Uh, all of, you know, just kind of running down the draft order, even outside of the lottery, like there are a lot of lottery perimeter players, but Trey Mann, Josh Christopher, Bones Highland, Cam Thomas, Jaden Springer, Keon Johnson, um, Jason Preston, Rokas Yakubitis, Miles McBride, Ayo Jared Butler. Like, I mean, that's like 11 dudes that if things break, right, they can be like really good rotation players, mm-hmm. if not better. In some cases, like that's an, in, if for one draft outside of the lottery, that is an enormous influx of like perimeter creativity, ball handling, shooting skill, all of it. And that's before even getting to like someone like Sharif Cooper who fell to 48. Now I think about it too. So like, It's going to be a really, really fun class to track. Uh, And to me, like, the perimeter skill, the shooting, like, the ball handling, um, you know, guys like Joe Wieskamp even who can really, really knock down shots. Uh, This feels like – I don't want to say like a turning of the tide in terms of the way that, like – teams evaluate the class because we're going to see next year next year like the best players in the class are almost all bigs uh chad holmgren uh Jalen duran if he ends up in the draft paulo Banchero, who is one of my favorite players that i feel like i've ever watched at the high school level because he's so smart and is like really developing a perimeter game like these guys they're all perimeter bigs in different ways but they're all bigs. This class is so great because it just put such an influx of fun perimeter talent into the league. And I think that we're going to look back on this draft particularly and outside of the star power, which is going to be real. We're going to look back and be like, Th- this was a really, really, uh, really strong draft to create a lot of fun moments for NBA teams.
1: Yeah, I'm super excited about it, and thank you so much for taking the time.
2: Of course, Danny, anytime.
1: Thanks again to Sam Vicini for taking the time to come on. You can, of course, read his excellent work at The Athletic. You can listen to the Game Theory podcast that he does, and you can follow him, if you don't already, on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, that's V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on, and was genuinely surprised that he had the wiggle room to do this. Um, it's been such a such a hectic. I mean, he's done amazing work. If you've subscribed to the Athletic, the Draft Guide, and everything else, really impressive. And to you know, I always try to give him a little bit of a buffer and kind of see. And reached out today, and so we're able to get it done, which is extremely exciting. And it also allows me to a certain extent. Close the door in the draft, open the door for free and see which presumably will be what next week's Real GM Radio is about. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways that you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode that is extremely helpful with Real GM Radio in particular because the show is never going to come out a particular day of the week. It's just going to be when I'm available, my guest's available. This is a great example of how that can work. And whatever podcast player you use, you can do that, Spotify, Apple Podcast, really wherever. And in that same player, you can leave a rating and a review that helps other people find the show as well. Well, and you can also spread the word word of mouth like a specific episode. Every you know what it, what the show is in general. Really do appreciate that. You can also check out my other work. A couple of fun collaborative pieces at the Athletic, including some with with Sam and, and with Seth Partno. Talked about the gargantuan Russell Westbrook trade, and I'm sure we have more in the offing. We've already started talking about what we want to do depending on where things go over the next few days. And then of course all my work with Nate Duncan. Dunked on, dunked on Prime. Still going strong, and we'll be moving through the offseason, so many fun things to discuss. And at some point, we'll do offseason grades and everything else. So definitely check that out. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is my promise. I will try to respond, but I'm admittedly much worse at that. But I will read it. That's that's what it's about for me, making sure that you're not wasting your time. And I think that's about enough for now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank <laughs> you.